I'd like to share with you an Asian folk tale that I like a lot. It's a story that apparently happened in India. It said that there is a small village at the bottom of a really high mountain. And on top of this mountain, there was a cave. And it was said in the village that some of the children of the village used to go up and leave food offerings up there. And although they never ever saw anybody, people suspected that there was somebody living up there. Some of the older people in the village seem to remember many years before a hermit mendicant monk arrive and move in there, but they weren't absolutely certain. Although sometimes at night there would be a glow coming out of the mouth of the cave. Well, one day, even though the sun was shining brightly, there was this great luminous light at the, at the mouth of the cave. And everybody's eyes were drawn up and this being stepped out of the cave. And the children rushed up the mountain the villagers went up also. And this man came walking down, his face really bright. The children threw petals on the ground. And it was almost as if this man wasn't even walking on the ground. He was a few feet above it. Some of the older people recognized him as this man that had come there 20, 30 years before. Well, as is customary in England, there was great ex uh, in England in India, there was there was great excitement, and somebody called out to the man and said to him, "What is it that you've learnt? What is it that you've accomplished after all these years up here?" And he lifted his downcast eyes and beamed a radiant smile, and he said, "I have overcome my anger." Oh, and everybody was very excited and they clapped and they danced and threw flowers at his feet. And then somebody else said, and furthermore, what is it that you've done after all these years up there? What have you learned? Please share with us. And he said, it's a considerable thing, the achievement that I've, that I've accomplished here. I have laid to rest, I've conquered my anger. Oh, and the people were all excited and they clapped and everything. And then somebody else said to him, and there must be something else that you've learned after 20, 30 years up here. And this cloud passed over his eyes and his fists went tight and he said, fools, idiots, he said, isn't it enough that I've laid down my anger? <laughs> It's said in the teachings that, that anger as a defilement of mind only completely falls away in the third stage of enlightenment. Just before the final enlightenment, just before one is an arahant or a Buddha, does anger completely fall away from the mind. So it's going to be around for a long time, <laughs> I think, for most of us. And we're all students of anger. 
We're all working with it in one way or another. You've heard me speak much, and probably the other teachers too, about samsara. Samsara in the teachings is this endless round of rebirths, that there have been beginningless births and deaths for all of us, and apparently there will be for many of us so in the future. And what it is that keeps the cycle of birth and death, birth and death happening, going on, are three deeply conditioned factors of mind. The factors of greed, aversion, and delusion. They're regarded as the spokes of this wheel, and they just keep returning. I'd like to speak specifically about aversion this evening. Aversion has many faces. Fear, frustration, rage, impatience, boredom, defensiveness, grief, grief, disappointment, dissatisfaction. All of these are different aspects, different facets of aversion. And tonight I'd like to specifically focus on anger. This is probably going to be a two-part talk because there are many pages here. So <laughs> I'll start tonight and end next week. But the subject of the talk is anger, self-hatred, and the power of love. This topic of anger, rage, self-hatred is a difficult one for many people, both in the meditation practice when these forces arise, and also in life. There's much misunderstanding about how to deal with anger. So I've given care that in this talk I'd be really thorough and comprehensive and I'll leave sufficient time at the end for us to have a good discussion and, and dialogue. It's a subject that comes up so often in meditation interviews and in questions that people ask about the practice. In the process of meditation that we do here, we must come slowly to open to the fullness of who we are, to the totality. We're all like these exquisite flower buds moving towards fullness and wholeness. It's so wonderful at IMS where I've been sitting for two months there, these hundred people all really doing this practice, day and night. A lot of people are sleeping just a couple of hours now. And they really, truly are like flower buds, all opening on their cushions. It's an amazing place to be. We open to the beauty and the wonder and the truth of who we are. We open to our capacity to love, to care, to share, to nurture and to understand. We open also to spaces of joy and calm and silence and emptiness within ourselves. <clears throat> and also we open to our darker side, to our shadows. We come to see our capacity to hate and to rage, to fear and to clutch and to hold on. 
We open to forces of guilt and attachment and confusion, of doubt and chaos within ourselves also. These forces can be so strong. And if our meditation is wholehearted and is true, it must call forth the entire range of what it means to be born human. The whole spectrum, what Zorber the Greek called the whole catastrophe. We have to open to the whole catastrophe. And for most of us, we carry self-images of who we are that are often lofty and usually very limited. And here on our cushions, we must open also to and feel the pain of the disparity between these images and the emerging truth of who we are. It's very hard and calls forth a great compassion for ourselves. Our resources of patience and endurance can be so deeply challenged as we begin to see the truth of who we are. Having anger arise in the mind is a part of being human. It's a part of the catastrophe. And yet what is true is that we live in a world where anger is largely regarded as highly unacceptable. I have this very old youthful memory of someone looking piercingly at me and saying, are you angry? Are you angry? Looking even for the most microscopic trace of this dreadful defilement in me. It's a memory that's very clear. And for me, for most of my life, anger has been a totally unacceptable emotion, both within myself and within other people. The taboo against anger is so strong in our world and for many people it is difficult to even know that the anger is there. People live in fear of anger because of the disapproval of others and also because the arising of anger most often signals the need for change and that can be scary too. And as if this weren't enough, our society furthermore has this highly sexist bias against women dealing with anger or manifesting anger in any way. Angry women are labeled unladylike, unfeminine, strident, shrill. They're called witches and nags, shrews. And there are even more derogatory terms which I shan't mention. And what is also astonishing is that one considers the truth that we live in a world where it seems totally acceptable for angry men to wage vicious wars and bloody wars all over the planet. And it's interesting to reflect really that in our language there are no words for angry men that I can think of. And all of this is an expression and evidence of the unacceptability of anger in our society. No wonder it is so 
unacceptable within ourselves. And the extent to which it is regarded as unacceptable and inappropriate within ourselves is the extent to which it remains unexplored. Yet, if our meditation is to be wholehearted, we need to integrate any and all of the cut-off emotions, including anger, within ourselves, so that we might reclaim all that we and others have deemed unacceptable. If our flower is to open into the fullness of who we are, this is a poem by Galway Canal, the Vermont poet. He says, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fado and the slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart to the blue milk and dreaminess, spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of the sow. So as a direct expression of the commitment which each of us has to harmlessness in our lives, we must take responsibility for our anger, for our rage. And this means a face-to-face -face encounter with this difficult emotion, an acknowledgement of its existence, learning to respond to the anger rather than to react to it, coming into relationship with the anger. What this means is not being governed by the anger, not being a victim of it, but rather relating to it with balance and with care. And to do this, we have to come to know the anger fully, kind of like an old cranky friend. All its quirks, all its edges, all its idiosyncrasies, and certainly its great power. Hopefully then coming to recognize it long before it, it evolves into the raging monster that it could so easily become. Seeing it the moment of its arising is really the challenge, and it's not easy. 
Let's first look at how anger is most commonly dealt with in our world. Anger is usually dealt with in two ways. Both are regarded as unskillful in the Buddhist tradition. Anger is firstly dealt with by suppression. And the second way is by the venting of anger. Both of these forms of dealing with anger are forms of attachment. Suppression is a clinging to the anger, a contraction around it, real holding it close in. And the venting of the anger is an aversion to the anger. It's like spitting it out, almost vomiting out the anger. Both of these ways rigidify and maintain the underlying patterns that precipitated the anger in the first place. Neither one is regarded as a movement away from suffering, but rather a reconditioning of further suffering. Let's look more carefully at the suppression and then the venting of anger before exploring an alternative. Why is anger so often repressed, as it certainly is in, in my case? Certainly, as I mentioned, society largely encourages the suppression of anger. Also, for many people, they live their whole lives in fear of the anger. They sense its presence and they're terrified of it. They're petrified of their anger, of their rage. They really fear that it's going to spill out of control, damaging their relationships, hurting themselves. And really, sadly, the truth is that this might very well happen if the anger is repressed for a long time. It can emerge in jagged, unpredictable, and very neurotic and painful ways. So often we keep the anger to ourselves to avoid conflict and to keep the peace. Our primary energy then becomes to protect others and to preserve relationships. And if this happens over time, we really come to lose all sense of ourselves. All sense of ourselves. And furthermore, this suppression of anger is painfully self-defeating and self-denying as we turn into Pollyannas of one sort of another. We become nice ladies and nice men sporting radiant smiles while we are perhaps seething and raging inside with resentment. Sometimes our anger is buried so deep that it's almost as if it's under a rock. This is blocked energy. And we know the effects of this can be so unhealthy. It seems very clear that repressed anger can cause disease and discomfort in the body. And furthermore, this deep and long repression can have profound psychological consequences too. A while ago, I was in a really difficult interpersonal situation. 
And for several weeks I was getting more and more angry. And what I didn't realize was the extent of the anger. I had no idea. Well, one morning I woke up and I was in this paralyzing depression. I lay in bed listless, really no energy, immobilized, unable to move really. And for those of you that know me, this is very uncharacteristic. I usually have a lot of energy. I really couldn't stir myself. It was as though my spirit was completely gone. I spoke to a friend and she suggested that I close all the doors of the place where I was staying and just scream and shout for a while. And so I did this for about five or ten minutes. I just roared like a lion. And all of a sudden it was as though the switch was thrown within me. This huge column of energy just roared through me. And it just roared and roared and roared. And afterwards when I lay on the bed and reflected on what had happened, it was just amazing. All the listlessness, all the depression was utterly gone. This huge rage was what was underneath all of that tiredness. It was such a graphic and vivid reminder of how dangerous it can be to repress and hold the anger in. So all of these are ways of dealing with anger that involve this repression, this suppression. Within the teachings of the Buddha, the other unskillful and common way of dealing with anger is the venting of it. Let's explore this way of working with anger. What is clear is that the old anger in, anger out hypothesis that says letting it all hang out so as not to protect us from holding it in is just not true. There are no reservoirs of anger within ourselves that we need to tap or we need to empty. In the meditation practice that we do here, we see that everything that arises passes away. They arise because of conditions, because of causes, and when the causes and conditions are gone, they move on. Nothing is permanent, and this includes anger. Anger arises, as I said, because of conditions, because of causes. Remove these and they fall away or change. Venting our anger, reactively spitting it out, just makes the pattern of anger stronger in the depths of our consciousness. Furthermore, the process of involuntarily emoting anger involves most often much identification with the anger. It becomes, I am an angry person. I am angry. I'm furious. My anger, my rage, all fueling the fire and the identification and the suffering. Sometimes if the anger is very suppressed, there are useful therapeutic devices to lift the anger to the surface. And this process really requires great care and skill on the part of the therapist. 
in order that the process does not create more attachment and the consequent suffering, but rather is a process that enables us to be objective and disidentified from the anger. The venting of anger can momentarily relieve the pressure of the pain and the burden of the suppression. But if there is this identification with the anger as self, as me, as mine, we're just creating a further prison rather than the possibility of freedom within ourselves. In this age of psychology, anger has been so ennobled, it has such a place of honor. How often do we witness righteous anger in the world? People choking with indignation about this or that. People allowing their anger to splash out hither and thither all over the place and then being proud of it. There may be short-lived satisfaction and relief in venting the anger, but in the long run the pain just endures. Thet Nhat Hanh is this really wonderful Vietnamese Zen monk. This is what he says about it. I know some of the people here have met Thet Nhat Hanh. He says, Some of us may prefer to go into our room, lock the door, and punch a pillow. This is sort of what I did. We call this getting in touch with our anger. But I don't think it is getting in touch with our anger at all. In fact, I don't think it's even getting in touch with our pillow. He's <laughs> got a sense of humor, this guy also. <laughs> if we are really in touch with the pillow, we know what a pillow is and we won't hit it. Still, this technique may work temporarily because while pounding the pillow, we expend a lot of energy and after a while, we are exhausted and we feel better. But the roots of our anger are still intact. <coughs> and if we go out and eat some nourishing food, our energy will be renewed. And if the seeds of our anger are watered again, our anger will be reborn and we'll just have to pound the pillow again. Pillow pounding may provide some relief, but it's not very long-lasting. In order to have real transformation, we have to deal with the roots of our anger, looking deeply into its causes. If we don't, the seeds of anger will just grow again. If we practice mindful living, planting new, healthy, wholesome seeds, they will take care of our anger, and they may transform it without our even asking them to do so. Our mindfulness will take care of everything, as the sunshine takes care of the vegetation. The sunshine does not seem to do much, it just shines on the vegetables, but it transforms everything. Poppies close up every time it gets dark, but when the sun shines on them for one or two hours, they sure to open again. The sun penetrates into the flowers, and at some point the flowers cannot resist. They just have to open up. 
In the same way, mindfulness, if practiced continuously, will provide a kind of transformation within the flower of anger, and it will open and show us its nature. When we understand the nature, the roots of our anger, we will then be freed from it. So how is it, then, that we get to the true nature of anger, to the very roots of it? This is the third way, not venting, not suppressing the anger. The third way is the way of meditation and the way of awareness. And the question or challenge here is how to allow the <coughs> anger not to be suppressed, not to be vented, but to have it come fully and wholeheartedly into the mind and into awareness so that it can be met, investigated, seen as empty, and seen as changing. The way of meditation is the way of acceptance and the way of patience. Whereas anger strikes out, lashes out, acceptance and patience really welcome, invite, a real contradiction of the anger. And this opens up the possibility of relating to the anger and not from it. This doesn't on any level imply that we become docile, wishy-washy, passive people in dealing with the anger. Rather what it means is that with discriminating wisdom and a clear comprehension of every situation where the anger arises, we are able to respond to it forcefully and powerfully in ways that are healing, both inwardly and outwardly rather than being mired in the escalating tit-for-tat and blame and heartbreak that so often happens when dealing with anger. This third way, this way of meditation, requires that we come up really close to the anger, looking directly at it, feeling it in the body, in the throat perhaps, in the chest, in the gut, in the bowel, in the lower back for many people too, in the face, seeing the effect that it has on the breath and the temperature of the body, feeling it in the mind too. How does the mind feel when there's anger there? Perhaps rigid, stiff, tight, rough, tense, contracted, looking at anger directly. But as I said before, coming to know and even see the anger can be a very difficult thing for many people and frustrating, particularly if there's been a great suppression. I've been doing this practice now for 10, 11 years. And in the last years, and certainly more so recently, I've been able to really engage the anger directly. It's taken a long time. For me, much of the anger relates to a deep patterning of conditioning 
the legacy of sexual abuse in my infancy. And as I reflect on why it is that it's taken so long for this to emerge into the light, perhaps it is that in the natural unfolding of the meditation practice, it's taken time for this heart and for this mind to mature to a degree where the anger, as powerful and as strong as it is, can be worked with. As I said at the beginning of the meditation this evening, all that we need to do in the simple and beautiful practice is just gently be horizontally present with what is going on. And in its own time, everything that needs to arise will arise, like that flower that we all are opening. I'm going to be talking um, a couple of Sundays ahead on um, the legacy of sexual abuse and working with it in meditation, so I'm not going to speak about that this evening. But So it may be that for some of you also, there is a long, slow, and gradual befriending of anger that is necessary. Perhaps it's been hidden for a long time and with good reason. Working with anger requires a lot of patience. And as I've said in other talks, having the strength and the willingness of mind to stop at any time of the day, any moment, in any situation, and just ask, what is happening here? What is this energy? Where do I feel it? In the mind? In the body? Is this anger? Is this sadness? Is this grief? Exploring, inquiring, looking all the time is the real essence of the practice. This is so important and it's an attitude really ripe with possibility. And with time, slowly, gradually, the full splendor and the energy of anger emerges into the open to be befriended, to be respected, to be made workable, and to be known fully. We open up again and again to the anger Using the mental notice that I mentioned in the instructions is very helpful. Even I use it sometimes if, I'm, if there's a lot of anger and I'm in a situation. I just acknowledge that the anger is there. It's angry, anger, anger. Observing anger in relationship to other emotions like fear and desire and shame and boredom. Seeing how it comes up in conjunction with other clouds of the mind. This is no easy task. It requires a lot of courage and conviction. Really grappling with what Suzuki Roki, Ro Roshi refers to as the weeds of the mind. Our willingness to do this can be so freeing. This is what he says. He's a very famous Zen master. He says, we pull the weeds and bury them near the plant to give it nourishment. So you should not be bothered by your mind. You should rather be grateful for the weeds because everything, because eventually they will enrich your practice. 
If you have some experience of how weeds in your mind change into mental nourishment, your practice will make remarkable progress. So what do we see when we engage the anger? Well, usually the first thing we see is that it's really unpleasant. And if we're engulfed by anger, we really burn up. Raging anger can be a real hell realm. And if it's fueled by blaming and thinking, it just goes on and on and on. And if you're doing a retreat like I've been doing, days of forest fire raging through the mind. It's amazing. The mind can get very concentrated also, one-pointed working with anger. Perhaps you've noticed this. It really intensifies the experience. If you're angry with someone, you really concentrate on them. You notice the clothes they're wearing, the expressions on their faces, their actions. You can really become fixated on them, usually not very generously, <laughs> usually quite critically. So too it is in the meditation. If there's anger there and the mind is with it, it can get very concentrated. Some people think that concentration is only something that happens in sort of elevated, high states. But, you know, if you think of like a burglar, you know, breaking in somewhere, boy, the mind is very focused and clear. And if we can have that kind of mind on our anger, it can also be very freeing, because it enables us to see the truths to the roots, to the very nature of the anger. We also see, if we look at it, that anger arises because of causes, not because there's a groundswell, a reservoir of anger inside of ourselves. If we get what we don't want, we get angry. If we don't get what we do want, we get angry. Anger often arises in relationship to many emotions, like pride and suspicion and impatience. If there is carelessness in our relationships, anger arises. There are a myriad of reasons. But what is important is that when, with anger, is that when it arises, we can be sure that we are at an edge. That it's an edge where the opportunity of freedom and understanding is enormous. Because anger arises when there's attachment. And so it's also an opportunity for us to let go, to be free. So we've seen it's unpleasant, we see it's concentrating, see it arises because of causes. What else do we see? Well, one of the things when you're working with anger is you see that it doesn't stay around for very long, that it's impermanent. When the conditions that precipitated the anger fall away, then the anger changes, often falls away. This is very important insight, the insight into the impermanence of anger. Because what this means is that when anger arises and it seems so fixed and interminable and it's going to be there forever, I'm going to be angry for the rest of my days. If you just say, this will pass, this will pass, can just change the whole tone of it, the whole feeling of the anger. It's very freeing to do that. 
can really shift the idea of the anger being solid and being unmoving. Another thing that's very clear in working with anger is that thoughts play a central role in fueling the anger. We observe in the meditation practice how thoughts condition the anger. We have a thought, we get angry. On the other hand, we can see how our anger can condition thoughts. The anger arises, oh, and there's this thought, and there's that thought, and we get blaming, and it just spins out of control. We see how the mind just spins out again and again, like a tape, blaming and plotting and being vengeful. Sometimes you can create imaginary situations in the mind and then get angry about them. It's nuts, you know. And who's hurting, you know? <laughs> who's the one that's in pain? Observing these thoughts as empty is really vital in dealing with anger. Really seeing that the thoughts are no more gavin than the clouds in the sky. Just seeing them passing by is very freeing. And I'll be speaking far more about dealing with thoughts when I next week speak about self-hatred and self-criticism. So I'm not going to speak more about thoughts, but dealing with the thoughts is really central. I want to share with you a quote I really like. I found it on this retreat. What I do on retreat often is I read the suttas, which are the discourses of the Buddha. Let me just digress for a moment. In a meditation hall at IMS, um, there's a there's a Buddha statue up front. And everybody has a different relationship with the Buddha. A lot of people bow to the Buddha for different reasons. You know, Sometimes they take refuge or they honor or have some sort of devotional feeling. For me, what I do is I don't bow, but I, I just look at him and I imagine that the real Buddha is there. It's like he's there, you know. And then I close my eyes and I just, Joseph was the one that suggested I do this. I really feel this deep respect for him. You know, he's there and he, he like, he, oh, I get, <laughs> he did it, you know. He, it's like through greed, hatred and delusion, he completely freed himself. And on this retreat, I really had felt like a personal relationship with this friend who was in the meditation room. And so I used to read a sutta every day, um, discourses. And this was one of the ones that I found about anger. It's like the Buddha as Shakespeare. He says, Anger with its poisoned sauce and fevered climax, murderously sweet. That must you slay to weep no more. <laughs> Anger with its poisoned sauce and fevered climax, murderously sweet. That must you slay to weep no more. And when you read these suttas, he speaks a lot about anger and how dangerous the anger can be if it's not dealt with skillfully. Look at the time. Well, not nearly as far as I'd hoped. 
What we see with anger is that it's very powerful. It is said that the high and direct energy of anger can be like a sword that can cut through delusion and open up complete wisdom to us. And this practice of transmuting the energy of anger is a very high Tibetan practice. Some of you may be familiar with it. The powerful energy of anger can motivate us to say no to the way that we're being defined by others and yes to the dictates of our own hearts, energizing us to turn from the outer to the distraction to the blaming inward so that we can grapple and work with freedom rather than being governed by this really powerful force in the world. This is really such priceless work that we're doing here, healing our hearts and minds together. We come to see also the profound truth of what another saying of the Buddha, this is out of the Dhammapada, which is a book of small verses that the Buddha said. This is a very important verse. He said, in this world, hatred never yet dispelled hatred. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. Hatred never yet dispelled hatred. Only love dispels hate. Loving kindness, which is a practice, a meditation practice that we've done here, is the opponent force of anger. It's the antidote. It dispels the anger. And generating loving kindness can, if really strong, seclude the mind from the anger, protect it from anger. And if we're in situations that are difficult, we can direct our great hearts of loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness towards the situations of anger and towards the anger itself, directing these qualities of the heart both inwardly and outwardly to those who we feel angry with or from whom we receive angry energy. It's like holding the anger in the embrace of our love and our kindness, our forgiveness, our compassion. And what this does is it softens the situation of anger, makes it more workable, and opens up the possibility of acceptance and healing and understanding. Anger can be so brittle. We move more and more to respond to anger as a mother responds to her beloved child with tenderness, with softness, with gentleness, and with respect. I'll speak further about love and anger in the talk next week. I'll just speak a little about patience and then I'll end. We use anger also to cultivate patience, which is one of the high qualities of mind. Rather than thinking it should have gone away by now, or 
this anger shouldn't have arisen in the first place, it changes. We take tea with the anger again and again and patiently again. Our willingness to open to the anger when it arises is so important. This is a wonderful poem by Adrian Rich. She says, A wild patience has taken me this far, as if I had to bring to shore a boat with a spasmodic outboard motor, old sweaters, nets, spray-mottled books tossed in the prow, some kind of sun burning my shoulder blades, splashing the oarlocks, burning through. Your forearms can get scalded, licked with pain in a sun blotted like unspoken anger behind a causal mist. The length of daylight this far north in this 49th year of my life is critical. The light is critical of me, of this long-dreamed involuntary landing on the arm of an inland sea. The glitter of the shoal depleting into shadow I recognize. The stand of pines, violet-black really, green in the old postcard, but really I have nothing but myself to go by. Nothing stands in the realm of pure necessity except what my hands can hold. Nothing but myself. Myselves. After so long, this answer. As if I had always known, I steer the boat in simply. The motor dying on the pebbles, crickets taking up the hum dropped in the silence. Anger and tenderness. Myselves. And now I can believe they breathe in me as angels not polarities. Anger and tenderness, the spider's genius to spin and weave in the same action from her own body anywhere, even from a broken web. The cabin in the stand of pines is still for sale. I know this. Know the print of the last foot, the hand that slammed and locked that door, then stopped to wreathe the rain-smashed clematis back on its trellis for no one's sake except its own. I know the chart nailed to the wall boards, the icy kettle squatting on the burner. The hands that hammered in those nails emptied that kettle one last time. Are these two hands, and they have caught the baby leaping from between trembling legs and they have worked the vacuum aspirator and stroked the sweated temples and steered the boat here through this hot, misblotted sunlight, critical light, imperceptibly scalding the skin these hands will also solve. Let's end there. Maybe sit together for a moment, please. <coughs> 